Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polities Podcast. We are here live in New Polities August studio with the books that we've read. And we're happy to announce, we're excited to announce that it's that time of year again. We have another magazine, issue 4.3. A little late, but you know what they say, better late than never. It's a pretty good one, I think. And I'm here with Alex Denley, who we're trying to familiarize you guys with. Uh, (laughs) The man behind the podcast usually, but uh, here now. So. Yeah, we let him out of the doghouse every now and then to to, to give us some wisdom. Um, yeah, this magazine is a little slimmer than than the last one. So if you're intimidated and if you thought, you know, I really want to subscribe to the greatest magazine on earth, but I'm worried about being able to get through it, this one, great start, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less thematic, but I think if I had to point to something that's really connecting it all, it's the question of crime, criminals, sanctuary, intercession, um, and how to deal with a world that seems to be falling apart. Yeah. Fair? Yeah, and you have, um, you know, kind of, well, three accounts, really. It's Augustine, you know, describing sanctuary, or what's a really weird concept to us. You've been researching it a lot more than me, but the idea of someone committing a crime and then running to the church. Yeah. Uh, like putting their hands on the altar, this type of thing. Um, and Augustine, in this, this is a letter, right? He's trying to defend the practice of sanctuary. That's right. So he got, he had a letter written to him. And as all these church fathers do, when they write letters, they're very aware that these letters are going to be circulated. Um, and so it's written in a very pastoral mode. But this is a letter um, he writes to Macedonius, who says to him, Augustine is describing this letter. You ask me why we say that it is part of our priestly responsibility to intercede on behalf of the guilty and to be offended if we do not get what we asked for, as if we do not get what pertains to our office. On this point, you say that you are deeply in doubt about whether this comes from our religion. Um, And Augustine's letter is a work of convincing Macedonius that indeed this does come from our religion. Um, so he doubles down and he doesn't, he doesn't back off from this very bold claim that it belongs to the priestly office to intercede for criminals. Um, and that if you don't, um, get the intercession you ask for from whoever's in pursuit of the criminal, rather someone seeking private personal vengeance or, um, from state authorities that you should be offended. That there's not just a like, and I, I think that's important. I don't just mean that, like, you know, you kind of have a hissy fit. I mean that <laughs> you understand that something um, politically improper has taken place when intercession is not given to criminals. That there's something owed to the office, to the way that the spiritual power and the temporal power function within society that is not being granted to the mm. spiritual office. Um, now, our age is can be described in many ways, but one of the ways you could describe it is an age that cannot have or understand sanctuary, intercession for criminals. Um, and that's what I wanted to open up the the magazine with. And one of the things we, one of the methods we have at New Polity is just to say, okay, when we were trying to live as a Christian society, what did we do? And when you find something like sanctuary, when we grant criminals sanctuary because they get to a church, um, you have to ask, why did we do that? And why is it incomprehensible to us today? 
because it, it does seem incomprehensible. Yeah, no, I mean, and where would you go? I mean, I mean, you could go to the church, but then the police would just run to the <laughs> church, and then you're, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it takes a whole society. I mean, this is um, this is a very important point that often people can describe late antiquity and the Middle Ages as as um, as the church having some kind of hold over a nascent secular society. And so they can look at history and they can say, wow, the church is really, you know, powerful and it can even be complimenting it mm-hmm. um, or they can be insulting it. Like the church shouldn't be that powerful. But the presumption is that there's this binary between church and state. There's this binary between the sac- sacred and the secular and the church is existing in its own sphere and operating down into the, into the world. But even 10 seconds of thought about our own society shows that this is not the case. Like if mm-hmm. you live in a world in which the cops don't respect sanctuary, then you don't have sanctuary. Like it's right. a it's a movement up and a movement down. It's the spiritual and the temporal agreeing actually on a on a common business. So when um when um there's a famous instance that John Chrysostom went through, and John Chrysostom loved the rights of the church when it came to sanctuary. He was always using it as a example of of mercy present in the world. I mean, the mm-hmm. kind of mercy that you hope to have from fathers and mothers within the family is extended. And and historically for the first time, it becomes possible to receive mercy in this very broad, very efficacious way just by going to a church and, and claiming sanctuary. There were things like it in the pagan era, but they weren't that widespread and they were really specific to um, the, like if you, if a runaway slave, for instance, grat, would grasp the feet of the statue of the emperor, then if his pursuers found him, I mean, they could take him back. He was still a slave, mm. uh, but they had to, they had to go easy on him. They couldn't like kill him or um, punish him. Now, now what sanctuary in late antiquity into the middle ages, um, what it entailed is if you made it to a church for mostly any crime, although as it develops, different countries have different crimes that you can't go to a church for sanctuary for, um, but you're saved from corporal punishment and including death. So you can't be killed if you get there. The priest, as Augustine points out, then becomes your mediator. And sometimes this was passed on to the deacon of the church, but there was a basic customary role where the priest would be the mediator between the offending party and those offended. Hmm. And they would have to speak to him. Now, obviously, this <laughs> is all... like a defendant and lawyer or right, something. Right, right. I mean, obviously, this is already a beautiful thought where, where, the, um, where the priest is, is doing something very Christological, right? Mm-hmm. He's standing before the wrath, as it were. Um, and he is... Even to the point that in certain um, medieval legends, you know, th- like there's this one that I remember where a saint is appearing to someone and wants them to build a monastery um, and is basically warning them, like, because my body will be there, you're going to have criminals coming here all the time <laughs> because it's going to be a holy place. And so yeah. um, so it's not even like this is priests were annoyed by their duty very often. I mean, history is rife with priests being like, ah, another scumbag got into this church and I have to defend him. But they did understand that they had to defend him. Right, okay. Um, okay, why am I saying all this? Trying to give you some kind of context for um for Augustine here. For why he's saying this. Like, we're reading this. What? 
that was a thing. Like I remember when you were yeah. first telling me about it, I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing Yeah, that you could run to the church because it's, you know, completely different today. And one thing I really like that Augustine said is not only is it beneficial to the one who's seeking sanctuary, but it's also what he'll say is beneficial to the one who's seeking justice or vengeance mm-hmm. to make sure he doesn't go beyond and become like vengeful Yeah, and, you know, sin by doing that. So we... You're you're starting to remedy the sin of the one who committed the crime by him repenting, although it's not there completely. It's not like okay, now you just didn't do anything. Um, no, in fact, Augustine in the same texts argues that there's something good about having harshness in law, precisely when you have mercy available in sanctuary. Uh, wow. and, and so, in a way, it describes the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages can be a really big puzzle to moderns it's what we have all fallen from in some way and so we don't understand it that the same age that is apparently home to like egregious looking punishments you know the dunking people and and you know um, obviously beheadings and uh drownings i mean there's just they just seem to take life not as seriously as we do in some ways Mm -hmm. um is the same age that will let people off for like, you know, getting to a place in time and the same age where there's an expectation, not just of justice, but that the wealthy will do charity to criminals. So like one of the examples that I always think of is the the stocks, right? Um, Is a prototypical scandal to the modern mind. Like you have the medieval i mean this is how we understand the middle ages we're like well there are people in the stocks getting tomatoes thrown <laughs> right. at them right every renaissance fair or whatever. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly which is granted good fun and this is actually to be clear if you want to understand the middle ages you just have to always remember that they were having fun like in punishment in liturgy in law like these guys were having fun. <laughs> and I think that's part of the scandal of the Middle Ages. We look at it and we're like, why is there a parade of people with jugglers and bears following someone who's about to have his head cut off or be hanged or something? And it's it's very hard to, to reconcile, but, and I'm not even defending them. <laughs> I'm just saying that the, the kind of key to medieval Christendom is to understand that having fun was a sort of constant. <laughs> You okay. just got to be having a good time. They, they, no, they really were. Going to the execution, get the circus. No, off. I mean some I of the. Uh, oh my gosh, some of the. Yeah. We, Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Should not reveal my um, my my sort of sordid desire for public executions. Not because of the public execution, because of the incredible speeches that history has left of people just going to their death with things to say, laying it all on the line. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um, but. Yeah, that's not today. Now we kill people very secretly and quietly and after a long time. So, in a bunker yeah. with like no one around. Yeah, we promise it's not happening even as we can't stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the church, um, by providing mercy, this is Augustine's argument, um, is, sh- I mean, is really showing the mercy of God in the same way that the state is showing the justice of God. And... You can see with Augustine, the whole of society is supposed to be revealing who God is instead of this idea of the God people um, kind of separately over and against a secular people where God isn't important. Mm -hmm. 
And so as we come to modernity and we look at the practices of the, uh, the Middle Ages, um, I think the thing we, the, the, the most basic thing we lose is, is real belief in God. So we have this idea that people could only ever believe if it were some means to another end. So when we look at sanctuary, the skepticism is that the criminal must just be doing it to get off. The people pursuing the criminal must just be obeying sanctuary because of the The power of the church. And the church, this is where it gets, especially when you read the history of the church grumbling so much about having to do sanctuary, it becomes a little implausible. But the theory of modernity seems to be that the church is doing it as a sort of proto-state. It's like flexing its nascent desire to really be the rulers and to mm-hmm. have a sort of hand on the justice system and things like this. So we're intercepting your criminals before they can go to your courts yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's just not the case. Uh, no, it doesn't seem like it. Um, but you can see the kind of backflips that moderns have to do and when there's a simple explanation, which is that everyone believed it and it was true. Like the simplest explanation is that the criminal, um, yeah, of course he wanted, you know, relief from his crimes, but mm. to go to the church is to admit wrong. And Augustine's point in this essay is that the penance that the priest applies to the criminal is a more sure way of securing his reformation than punishment. And this is, I think what we have to remember today. Like whenever we look at, uh, sanctuary and think like oh how how weird and quaint christians you know pretending that churches have like power or something we have to look at our prison system and say okay sure maybe that's the weirdest thing in the world but you know what's a little bit weirder is locking up a incredible amount of people with not even the pretense of reformation anymore mm-hmm. we're just like let's let's make an alternative city of criminals in which people become bad we know they become bad through the process of, of prison, um, but let's keep doing it because there is no alternative. Right. That is a wildly, um, and I use this term pejoratively, religious belief, mm-hmm. right? I think it gets us to Foucault. I Why mean, not? Because it's, it's really funny because you, you <clears throat> with Augustine, you're, you're seeing a kind of medieval sanctuary, you know, uh, society where... And what Foucault, I think the first thing he draws out with delinquency is this kind of movement from offender to delinquent. Like there's a, a, a further subjectification because if you're just an offender, you're a citizen who's done something wrong and then you receive a punishment and you go back to being just a citizen. Yeah. But the way that the prison system, what, what changes the whole thing is delinquency or being a criminal. Yeah, the kind um, of permanent identity that as a felon or yeah, yeah, which you get both. I mean, and and Foucault's not naive about this. Um, you get it both as an actual categorization of the state, like you are from now on. You have a, a record; it's on your record. You undergo certain forms of surveillance because of this, from parole onwards. But also, the people consenting to this kind of power structure of course, psychologically are consenting at the same time to view people who did a crime and did time nevertheless as still a criminal class. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think coming from Augustine, what you can see is, I mean, that's normal to us. Like that's totally normal. Um, 
But coming from the Augustine essay into this Foucault essay, I hope people get the sense that it is an invention of modernity, the permanent status of criminality, and then ultimately delinquency, which we'll talk about, is an invention of modernity and has a specific purpose. And this, again, goes back to the kind of punishments of the Middle Ages where, you know, one of the things that they would do is if someone committed a crime, um, one of the common penances in England, and I think it was elsewhere, but certainly in England, was a public shaming, essentially, where uh, at the Sunday Mass and uh, potentially for multiple Sunday Masses, um, the, the criminal would uh, wear a sort of alb, like a white alb, and hold a candle, usually be barefoot, and would walk in front of the procession, in front of the priests and the altar servers, um, or the clerks, and would then stand, and often that was it, and then other times they would stand on, I think, the right side, no, the left side of the altar, and hold the candle for the duration of the Mass. Now, imagine getting that kind of uh, penance, that kind of punishment. It would doesn't fit today. Every now and then something happens where it's really exciting because you see the way that the common sense of the Middle Ages is just bubbling under the surface of this this facade. Like there was a great story in I think it was the early 2000s where an Irish judge was convicting a man of public drunkenness. He'd been in a few times. He'd been into jail a few times and come back into the court system. I mean, this is a typical case. Like nothing's getting better. Nothing's improving. And he gives the guy as a punishment um he has to go on pilgrimage. He gives him a pilgrimage to go on. Mm-hmm. You have to do this. Now, of course, this is like, you know, this is early 2000s. No one's, I don't think, being really faithful. But the judge at least had this understanding that something needed to happen to this man that pro- pro- provided a before and after, that he that he was allowed to become something different than he was. And this man, he went on pilgrimage and he did it as like, he was like raising money to do it because that's that's the only way we can yeah. think about these things. It's like, well, I'm doing it for charity. Um, <laughs> so he's raising money and he goes and he climbs up this mountain. I forget what it was, comes back and and he's just um, really reformed. I mean, it, he has a, he a new long time spirit. To think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the harshness of the medieval punishments, I think, always has to be, you always have to remind yourself that there was the real sense um, and not all the time, but you know, sin can interrupt this, obviously. But there is the real sense that you took your licks and then you were done. Yeah, you know, like a right. flogging or something. There's mm-hmm. not like you get flogged, the peace is restored. You don't get this like permanent status as criminal, where where you are treated by the authorities as if you are a continuous object of surveillance. Mm-hmm. Now, now you might become that in a sort of, you know happenstantial way in the sense like if you are in fact always doing crimes you are in fact always going to be suspected by law enforcement and whatever form it's taking within a society of course but the punishment itself was designed to put an end to things it's like no one wants i mean this is sorry i have a lot of thoughts about this people people have this idea that like like even parents want to punish but i don't think that's quite true i mean maybe in some like either very abstract or very crooked way you could want to punish. But what parents really want is peace. Hmm. And the punishment is often very necessary to procure the peace. But the idea that they they want to punish their children is is a little absurd. And what I find in looking at the Middle Ages and, and Sanctuary is a kind of extension of that 
reticence to punishment, but when you do punish, it's in such a way that you're getting back to the peace. You're, you know, giving the guy what he deserves. Yeah. You're making restitution, and then you're moving on. I think one of the one of the markers of that would be, yeah, the reception of the person after they've done the penance or mm-hmm. the crime or whatever back into the social group. So if he does the pilgrimage, comes back, it's like, all right, he's back. Maybe yeah. it's still a little disgraceful, and he's like, okay, oh, well, that, that dude had a, you know. No, it's not but, magic. I'm not talking about magic here. No, it's yeah, not- <laughs> of course. And then, um, but, you know, you get out of prison, you get like a phone call, right. and now you're just a felon for life, and also you've made a lot of connections with people in the, the prison because you put all the criminals together, yeah. and you're probably more rough and tumble than when you were outside on the streets or whatever it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's like anyone that I've met that's gone to prison has always said it made them worse. And what they really fear is the time immediately after prison where, especially through being involved in prison gangs and such, they're immediately more entrenched in violence and um, the potential of crime than before. And then this is actually manifested in the parole system as well, where, um, you know, prison um, bleeds out into society as a whole through this system and just through our, our the totalizing nature of the prison system. It's like, um, and the, uh, sorry, Foucault speaks about this because what he, he says is, look, if you take reduction of crime as the marker of the success of the prison, then everyone would admit that the prisons have failed. Mm-hmm. If you take the reformation of the criminal as the the way of judging whether prisons are good, everyone would say that prisons are bad. They do not reduce crime. They do not um, prevent criminals from becoming more criminal. I mean, in America, I think the I think the rate at which people oh the rate is something crazy. I shouldn't I shouldn't do a statistic here, but look it up. The rate of recidivism, so the rate at which people who've been to prison go back to prison, yeah. is astounding. Uh, it's it's very high. Mm. <laughs> um, so. Foucault says, but if you are looking at these two markers, you're looking at the wrong thing. The question of the success of the prison is not in the reformation of the criminal, nor is it in the reduction of crime. Those are sort of um, superficial and and I think he thinks lies. I think think those are actually lies from from, um, governments that they tell themselves and others in order to um, have a system of prisons. And, and do. don't you think it reinforces the classification of criminal by that? Like by, I mean, that's Foucault's part, I suppose, but by not reforming the criminal and by not reducing crime, it reinforces the idea in the social consciousness that there is just a people called criminal yeah. and they just do criminal things. Like I'm thinking of, it makes me a normie, but like Batman, Dark Knight, where it's just kind of like, you know, Harvey Dent wants to throw everyone in prison right. to solve it. And the mayor's like, look, this is just going to cause more problems because yeah. now the mob's going to be coming after you. But it's not that <clears throat> they're, they kind of just accept the fact there's just going to be this group called criminals. And mm-hmm. if you let them run amok, they'll uh, take over the city. Didn't you, know? you say that you, you've read Bentham on this? Yeah. Bentham. Who is he? Can you kind of introduce him? Yeah. Jeremy Bentham. Man, I haven't. Because uh, doesn't he was, deal with him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He has. So he's kind of known for like this kind of social utilitarian uh, model. But with regards to the prison, he he basically 
He says that you're going to have a certain percentage of people who are too violent for good society, whether it's like five to 10% or something. So ideally you would, you would basically loan out to the economy, the time that would have been lost by them being violent and, you know, like messing up the economics. So the prison system is really a time-based way to keep the economy going without having those bad people in there. Gotcha. So then you say, well, this fits five years, this fits 10 years, and then, you know, whatever, this is 20, and then this is life. But why do you put, like, it's not actually for the punishment of the crime, because it's like, how does stealing a car and then shooting somebody and then doing like all these other things equal time in prison? But it does equal time in prison if you're counting by how how much time can it, the economy recover from your bad deed. So like it's <laughs> and like get t- alone. time is set by lost GDP basically. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So, and and I think that's that's the reason why it, it's the utility of keeping prisons going because uh, and people will talk about it like you know this this area has more crime and then these economies receding in that area and that mm. stuff and so we put more of them in prison. So anyways, that's the, that's the kind of Bentham angle to it. Yeah, and you see this in, um, I'm forgetting, the, oh gosh, the federal, the commission that basically um, standardized uh, prison sentences. Um, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Basically what we've done, at least in, in our country, which obviously is a, um, even compared to other countries, is definitely an anomaly of, of a, a very prison happy country. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we did is we really took away power from the judiciary. And I should maybe say that in the sense that we took yeah. away the faculty of judgment from our um, justice system. So the way that we did this was in some ways really well motivated. There was this sense that as is always the case within liberal societies, there's this great fear of personal corruption um, being irrational and this great mm-hmm. desire to set everything by constitution so that people can um, be prevented from corruption. Because yeah. our big claim, our big effort as liberal societies is to have peace without virtue. So we can take bad people and because they're constrained by law and constitution, we will have good results. This is the basis of capitalism. This is the basis of um, bureaucracy Mm -hmm. is that we don't need virtue. Um, We just need power to enforce order and peace. Okay. The way that the way that translated for us in the, in the judiciary system is we basically set um, times for crimes. So um, a stealing gets you this much. If you were stealing and you had a gun on you, then you add a point, and that point translates to a different time. If you had a gun and you pulled it out, then that's another point. Um, if you were motivated in this way, minus three. You know what I mean? It's like it's a math puzzle. It's so insane. Well, like, it's I, in- I, I don't know. It's like <laughs> it's just so crazy to me. Well, what's I think what's fundamentally crazy about it is the arbitrariness of it. Like yeah, at some right. point, there is no particular reason. I mean, you can you can say, okay, I can see why you would get more for murder and less for theft, but why oh, yeah. this much more or why this much less is not answerable. It's obviously a arbitrary decision of of sovereign power. Mm-hmm. It's just this much because we had to pick something, and they did. Um, now, again, 
in some ways, this was well-motivated because it was trying to get over irrationality in judgment to say like, look, you can't give a guy this much because he did this because you're actually corrupt or you're a racist judge or you have some kind of thing which is making you, you know, um, give excessive time in prison. Mm -hmm. But the net result hasn't been, I mean, people will talk about this obviously with like, like marijuana use, right, which has the crimes that involve it, they have certain codes they follow. The judge is no longer using judgment about, well, what was this person going through and what would be the best thing for his reformation and what would be the best for the society that he's offended. Um, these aren't questions that he can ask or can't make judgments on the basis of because he simply has to plug in the code. Totally. So you did this, you did X, this is the sentence you get. Now, yeah. after that, there's some like extrinsic, you know, ways of lowering sentences but in, in its most fundamental form um we don't need a judge we need a computer and and so judges become extremely cynical totally because, i was at um yeah i was at notre dame and i heard a, a talk by actually he was a judge for in chicago for like a really long time and he said um exactly with that same commission that gave you exactly what you are to say he just found that like if he wanted to be a robot as a judge, he could be a robot. Mm -hmm. But he said, what I encountered in my practice as a judge was not legal entities with conflicting interests. It was just persons yeah. with their own, you know, problems and whatever. And he said, what I would typically do is I would, uh, you know, take the different parties, I would separate them. I'd have them come into like my conference room mm -hmm. You know, take, you know, still wearing all my garb and stuff and just say, all right, what's your, you know, complaint against the, the defendant? Yeah. And just wait and just like listen. Yeah. And they, they vented out, completely vented out and all that stuff. You'd go to the other side, the prosecuting side, whatever, um, do the same thing. And then he comes back and like usually they've come to some type of, you know, totally. understanding or agreement. Maybe totally. they settle something like that. And he's like, if I wanted to, I could just be like, well, the law says this, we've proven this, bye-bye, yeah. you know, get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Um, and the law encourages that. And there was a book you recommended, I just got it called Masks of the Law, and just talks about that phenomenon um, for well, our legal system. Well, I mean, what you describe is him taking up part of sanctuary. So part of sanctuary was that the priest and met with the offended and the offender in order to um, help people arrive at a, at a peaceful solution i say solution and i'm should be clear that solution could be imprisonment and that solution <laughs> could be killing the dude like let me, yeah this isn't like just like sometimes we're forgiving all yeah i know. know well it's 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 hard because sometimes you talk like this and there is a obviously prison abolition movement that has um muddied the water the waters in a lot of ways by sometimes not everyone but some some people have this like idea that you can't imprison people at all because of like a human dignity argument? Yeah, it's just okay. like freedom is so, so special. And I just want to be to be clear. That's not what's being argued here. Mm -hmm. um, you can imprison someone. Yeah, why not? If they're, if, if, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's just funny. It's like, we're so worried about things. And I just, the moment you think about what they were doing to people in the middle ages, it just becomes kind of tame. Like, <laughs> see, when I think of a good prison, I think like those 1950s, like Western prisons where it's just yeah. like some bars and you throw the guy in there. Yeah. You don't, I don't think of, you know, the huge state penitentiaries or something like that. Well, but the state penitentiaries are built as these sort of like monuments to our shame over it all. They, they look, um, 
they're, they're to make the criminal class a sort of invisibility to a respectable class. Um, and it is what you would expect ultimately from a society that can't understand sanctuary, where there, once you get rid of the idea that there is in a society a sort of central point of peace, then all you have is war. And, mm-hmm. and all you have is, is like the, the, um, the attempt to regulate coercion in such a, such a manner that, you know, as much peace as possible is sort of eked out of things. What I, what I was thinking about with sanctuary is just the fact that what does it mean to go to a church? Why was it the church that became the, the locus of sanctuary? Um, and the most obvious reason is just that it was possible because the church was the one thing everyone was doing in society. So, for instance, like within the Middle Ages, heretics couldn't receive sanctuary because to be a heretic was de facto to not be participating in the one thing of society. It was to be participating in some other thing violently opposed to the society. And so the church didn't was what you were at war with. I mean, that's just definitional, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But when you have a society that's pursuing a common good, you also have that common good take on a sort of incarnate form for for Christendom, this is the church. It is the realization of the good that we're all seeking. Like we're all seeking peace and here in the church, we've found it. We're all seeking unity as brothers and here in the church, it's realized. We're all seeking heaven and here in the church, sacramentally, it's present in the mass. So to go to the church isn't just to say, okay, I know I was wrong. It's also to say, I know I was wrong and I want to show with my body its location, what I do with my body, I want to show a will to be a part of the common thing. Mm -hmm. I'm on the team again. I'm on the same team. I know I left, but I'm on the same team again. And whenever you do that, mercy is a natural response. To see someone, I mean, you think about a parent with a child. Like if the child preemptively comes and says, I did this fault, but I am on the same side as you. I I want your mercy. The reason mercy is natural is because the child has, in a sense, already attained the end that punishment would seek, namely uh, an end to the disruption, a restoring of the peace, and everyone being back on the same page together. And so when the child achieves that for himself, the parent would be kind of, it'd be a little bit odd if he just like went through some violent spanking to be like, sorry, the law's <laughs> the law, and you got 16 spankings from, that's what the code said. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a logic to it, and that logic is lost when a society doesn't have anything in common, which is where we're at, there's no goal to liberal societies. In fact, they're proudly premised on the idea that there's no point to human life, and so you get to figure it out yourself. This is supposed to be the great pleasure that we all take in being liberals. In fact, it's what it makes everyone miserable and insane, and also makes things so merciless, because there is no way of signifying that I'm back on the team after breaking with it if there's no team. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You're going to go to a Lutheran church and like tug on the hem of the of the pastor there? I mean, it doesn't signify anything. It's like that's just a arbitrary private opinion church. And the fact that you're there means nothing to the whole society. So, yeah, the yeah. cops are going to bust in and break your thumbs. <laughs> like, of course. So, yeah. so the Middle Ages, we look to not as like we can somehow just go back to that. I know sometimes we get accused of that. But because when 
if society is about the work of Christianity as its common life, which is what the church is. I mean, it is the social, the socialness of man taking concrete form. Then new politics are really possible. Yes. Sanctuary is something that was new to the world. It really it was new to the world and it is now strange to the world mm-hmm. because it's something that only comes about when you're all doing one thing. It also solves the problem of, well, it alleviates some of the fugitive problem. Like if you're, if you commit a crime, like the police just presume you're going to flee. Like, oh, and yeah. we're going to chase him and like, it may end up, we shoot you. You're definitely going to get like thrown with your face on the ground. But imagine if like, you know, you commit a crime and you like walk into the police department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, no, but it's sanctuary so would be it's awesome. So it's like, okay, well you got a place to go if you don't want to, you know, keep trying to flee. Yeah. Um, and it actually, it actually made the, the legal system really work very well, which is why even as you know, the state started to be built up in royal regimes, they used sanctuary. They weren't like opposed to sanctuary. That's another myth that like, like, you know, nascent states didn't like sanctuary because they didn't like the church. It's so, so dumb. Really, they, they, especially in England, they saw, they maintained sanctuary law as um, a way of doing criminal justice. It, um, I mean, one of the most obvious things, yeah, is you know where the criminals are going. And sanctuary churches depended almost entirely on the villages that surrounded them um, participating in the logic of sanctuary and being offended if sanctuary was violated. So when a criminal got into the church, you would often find that the villagers would stand in front of the door, not because they liked the criminal, uh, but because they loved the church. Wow. And so then the the pursuers would actually be beaten off usually, not by like a organized police force or the priests, heavens, um, but by the villagers who are defending sanctuary. So there's a really great paper, which I'll try to link in the comments that, that um, talks about the way that sanctuary was efficacious precisely through sincerity. <laughs> you, don't yeah. get, you don't get it without sincerity. Anyways, we spent a long time on this. Yeah. Delinquency though, Foucault gives his, gives his whole take on this and comes up with the, with the basic idea that the prison system doesn't succeed if you're looking for it to reduce or reform uh, crimes and criminals. Uh, but it succeeds if you're looking for it to produce a certain class, um, which gives the state a great power in surveilling the entire society. Because mm-hmm. if you can have people come and become registered as criminals, as delinquents, if you can set up forms of always surveilling them, then you have spies. You basically have a class of spies who are going to go back to other criminals. And so you can use them. You also have spies for any kind of revolutionary activity because everyone knows especially states at this point uh that there's a link between you know the various insurrectional threats and um revolutionary or communist or other other type threats that a state has Um, and so by having delinquents um as a perpetual class that's in contact with the police at all times then you also have the ability to to kind of break open um any kind of solidarity movements by assuming that they're going to have the delinquents in their midst. Those people are going to oh, be yeah, able to be serve violent. as spies. Yeah. And they also, this is one of the points he makes, it sets the lower class against itself. So you you basically ensure that there will be people who are never forgiven 
and that they become an alternative class within the lower class. Because let's be honest, mm. like we're not talking about rich people here. We're talking about poor people, which you can imagine the situation because I think it still exists today. I don't think this is like foreign. It's just that you basically establish like the good poor and the bad poor. Um, and then this, this enables you to always break any possible solidarity um, within, a, within a potentially oppressed poor class. So this is obviously very important within early capitalism <laughs> that um, as long as you can tell, you know, the guys trying to organize against capital that in this scenario, this guy's, you know, a dirty criminal, you can break solidarity. Uh, and this was in fact what was done. Foucault brings up a lot of good examples. Um, and so in this way, he says the prison succeeds. It succeeds as, oh, and then the other big thing, which we've discussed in the, in the tyranny podcasts, um, is that the creation of a delinquent class is always a kind of gun held at the head of the middle class as mm. the thing that can happen if you don't stay in line. So instead of this movement in which someone commits a crime, then is punished for it, then is brought back into society, you have a constantly uh, monitored and despised class of people who will always be felons, always be criminals, um, which becomes the way that a middle class that's stripped of any nobility or any kind of values um, is is differentiates itself as the normal people. They the could be people. Walter White. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They could go from middle class, Al, uh, you know, Albuquerque. To yeah. So that's what that's what Foucault argues, and I think it's uh, to read those two essays works really well, and then it also I think works really well with the with what follows it, which we had an, a wonderful submission from um, a. Uh, deputy sheriff who asked us to change his name for reasons of privacy, but um, who wrote a great reflection on just being a cop. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff he, uh, he had to, he's run into. Um, and it's a little dark. It's a little bit depressing because his basic thesis. And I think everyone would agree with it is that, Order is breaking down. There isn't a lot of respect for law as such. The justice system is prey to a sort of apathy. It does not know how to solve the problems it has. Homelessness and um, drug use have made the kind of categories of, you know, good cop versus bad criminal into this very ambiguous police officer as management of society's suicide sort of thing, which uh, <laughs> yeah. is bleak and he felt the bleakness. But his ultimate conclusion though is the title of the essay, the police won't save us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it is very bleak because he gets to the very end of it. He's talking about the conservative response is just let's up the police. More funding will like solve the criminal problems, you know, and it's the Democrats in California and New York or who are, he doesn't say that, but you know, who are keeping the police down, defund the police, mm -hmm. saying that they're all racist, which he points out is like a lot of departments just aren't getting staffed because mm -hmm. who wants to be, a, totally. you know, a copper now. But, you know, he, he says, um, 
I really like this this line of this in the short term an infusion of funding and support into the criminal justice system may be prudential in some contexts, but that would only be putting a very expensive bandaid uh, bandage on a festering wound. It may look tidier and smell less offensive, but it's sure as hell not healed. Yeah, and you know this kind of response that we have to up it. You know more. Okay, do you have a lot of homeless and drug use in your area, and there's petty crime and all this stuff, and stores getting robbed or whatever? Um, is the response just to universally we just increase police and then things will be solved? And his answer is like, no, it doesn't. It, it still, yeah. Um, still doesn't work well, so we have to have societal change first in order to um uh he gives like three categories to that i don't know if you had a comment first but oh just that it's it's an untenable situation to solve at the level of statecraft uh which is what you're saying and and that's the answer we don't want to hear like we want to hear that with the right expenditure of money by powers we will we will fix it Mm-hmm. And so for the conservatives, it's like, well, let's spend money in order to expand prison capacity, um, change policy so that um, crime is punished like that, and increase enforcement, maybe the police. And what we will then get is all of this bad stuff that's obviously increasing will get solved through the prison. Problem, namely that the prisons don't uh it would be more effective to kill everyone who commits a crime because (laughs) prisons don't actually make people less criminal. And so unless we're committed to like, that is the thing about prisons. Like you can't do it unless you commit entirely, Um, which at that point you might as well kill all criminals. And then, Mm -hmm. then there's something. Oh, you have like a, what what was it? Duterte, the, uh, in the Philippines, it was like, if you have any drugs, the police can just execute you on the spot. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's horrible. (laughs) Right. You know? But um But in a way it's more logical. It's much more logical. Because mm-hmm. what we do is we say, okay, we want to solve this problem, but we're bourgeois enough not to want to go to war. And so what we say is, well, let's put them in the place where the problem gets solved through the use of money, but that place fails. It creates worse criminals. It, yeah. it hardens criminals. And and we know this. And so um so that doesn't work. Uh and then the alternative is this like just totally brain slurried leftist thing where it's just like, well, there's no problem here. You know, like let's just let people do stuff. What's everyone's brain, so mad about? Brain slurry is way too accurate, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, it's, un- it's, it's just unbelievable. Um, that now not everyone's that dumb. I, I get it, but all the people who run San Francisco probably. It, it got dumb. pretty dumb for yeah. a while where there was just this idea that somehow crime is actually caused by its punishment uh, and that if we just got rid of policing and punishing, it, it's like this idea that sin isn't real and that sin is made up to control people. And so if we just let everyone go, then then sin won't happen. It won't affect people. There's something there because people are glimpsing the kind of um, closed circuit of crime and punishment that characterizes modernity. They're mm-hmm. glimpsing this lack of solution um, and this production of delinquency as characteristic of our society. But because they're not willing to become Christian, they have no 
they have no framework but to say, okay, Remove I'm just oppression. gonna I'm just yeah. gonna move I'm gonna do the opposite of the coin. If the conservative is is the one who says, well, let's just get put them all in jail, then then the liberal is increasingly becoming the one who just says, um, like, let's just let people do what they want and and not have any enforcement mechanisms besides sending like social workers to your house to, you know. Mm-hmm. talk with you which is of so course say the, the, the cons- most Foucaultian thing that could have happened was yeah. the like we can do this through therapy <laughs> <laughs> oh Foucault would not have liked that <laughs> so you're saying the conservatives on one side want to use vengeance and too much and then the lefties on the other side want to just pardon and not even see a thing as an offense yeah so maybe we're thinking about sanctuary again <laughs> no totally it's but uh yeah, he he gives a few. Um, uh, he says we we start to break down these these controls. Uh, these we 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 start to kind of reincorporate some informal social controls that aren't like police and legal apparatuses, mm-hmm. but what he calls belonging, authority, and expectations. And the point being is that well, if people belong to a family, to a group, to you know different people they're the ones that can really help people not go down certain paths or let's say it's, you know, drug abuse or something. They're often the best people to help you get out of that. Yeah. Right. Cause it's not mainly a criminal offense, but a, you know, like physiological and psychological thing that led you to that point, then it becomes, you know, criminal as well. But if you belong to somebody, they're like, we got to get you out of this. We got to get you yeah. help. And he brings up belonging because he says, you know, there wasn't, police before the 19th century which is really important to remember like the thing that we think of as police now there was law enforcement in different ways but the thing we think of as like a police force that is there to take care of things when they become bad mm-hmm. is and uniformed and uh, representative of of the state all that stuff uh that's very modern it's invented in london um and kind of went out from there and he's asking the obvious question, like, how did we do it before? So when he brings up belonging, the point is that, and we've brought this up many different times in many different ways uh, with New Polity, but the police, the police force, is a sort of concentration and a corruption of a power that every human person has, which is to render the wicked impotent and to defect, to, to protect and defend the weak. This is not just a power we have, but it's actually an obligation we have. So when we have power, we have to use it in this way, namely to render the wicked impotent and to um, defend the weak. That's policing. Um, The idea that you can take that from people, essentially make it illegal for people to police themselves at the level of that um, this author is talking about, at the level of belonging. And to make it a professional um, service provided by trained professionals. Um, that is the fundamental sort of modern error, it seems to mm. me, when it comes to criminal justice, is that we can have the the goods without the work. You know, and everyone knows this at some level. It's like, you, you know, you read in the news these like crazy stories of, of you know, moms calling the cops on their 13 year old because the 13 year old like lied to them or like, you know, broke their car or something. And, 
And, and we roughly describe this in our category as like, this is the breakdown of the family. Um, but it's also the logical conclusion of giving up on virtue as something necessary for the peace. Like mm. you just don't get to have a peaceful society if you do not have virtuous, which means strong people. If you're not willing to police a given situation, you are the source of the professional police because that is the way that we abdicate our own power and and end up, you know, just calling the professionals to deal with this thing called sin. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't mean that there's like not a crisis as if we could all just say like, you know, like fentanyl, for instance, it does make things difficult. Um, but the point of the auth- the author's... Uh, the police won't save us is that there is no solution. Like this is going to be a really bad time for, for society because we have progressively upped um, the sort of violence that we're capable of within society Mm -hmm. and progressively degraded the social controls. He calls them um, that kept things in check prior to this. And, and we're now realizing that solutions can't be just bought and paid for. And so what he's arguing is very simple. We need to be Christian. We need to have mass conversion, all become virtuous, right? Which is like saying, you know, let's do the thing that we all know we're supposed to do. Yeah. But as you might have noticed, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very pessimistic in that regard, but it's also, I think, very realistic. Like you don't, you don't solve society just by the introduction of more guns. You know, you, you have to become good. Mm-hmm. You have to become the thing you're describing as as the end goal, which is peaceful and good and strong and virtuous and all you know all these things. It's so obvious. I mean, I feel like I'm I feel like uh, sappy saying it sometimes. Yeah, it's like well, it's like you got to be a good person. How are you going to do this without being a good person? <laughs> but I think it's true, and it's nice to hear someone on the ground there who's who is working as a as a police officer, but is seeing the same sort of thing that without virtue um we're not going to spend our way out of out of a out of crime mm-hmm. so we got a few um few academic essays uh we also have an essay by um matthew del santo the analogy of kingship um mystic subtitle mystagogy of the coronation of charles iii yeah. Um, very pro-monarchy, we should say. Yeah. Um, and even talking about it as kind of a, you know, a Dionysian divine names, like ascending kind of mystagogical um, analysis of this coronation. It's very beautiful. Yeah. And I think he really points out what is going to be, we're going to be doing a little more of, we're publishing um, an article by Andrew Lloyd Jones about the the meaning of royal royal power in Thomas Aquinas, um, because this unfortunately kind of gets usurped sometimes by the monarchists, by which I mean the kind of romantic view that all their problems would be solved if we just had kings. Um, but by kings, people aren't clear what they mean. So, mm. so when they say that, you're kind of on your guard because they might mean like an absolutist king. Or they might just mean like King George and the American Revolution shouldn't have happened kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it's unclear and it's often very romantic and it's often the kind of like audible sigh of someone who's just tired of really thinking about politics. And so it's just like, well, put someone in charge who's good. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Andrew's writing about 
that royal power as a social phenomenon. So like something that when a people are a certain way, they become capable of royal power of, of a society that is living under royalty. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and he makes the obvious point that not just any people can be a people ruled by a king, that it's a, a kind of people who become ruled by a king. It's a kind of people who become ruled by a tyrant. This is the classical philosophical tradition. And so he, what I see in Del Santo is, is in some ways, I mean, it's just very, it's very beautiful how the, the kingship of, of Christ is present in the rule, in the, in the um, kind of the liturgy of coronation in England. But at the same time, it's also extremely apparent that this is a kind of um, echo of a reality that isn't present right now. Mm-hmm. You know, like we can't think of a king without him being an authoritarian with an administrative state. <laughs> like, oh, right. like what would a king even look like today? If this actually kind of moves me to the pagan laws and the people of God, where he's talking about, um, you know, the different, uh, what he calls like the natural estates of king or magistrate, um, kind of the people generally, and, you know, whatever the intermediary is, I can't remember the, the third one. Yeah, kings, priests, lords, there's different ways of saying it, magistrate, assembly, council, cabinet. Um, but that the, he's taking on Vermeule, um, I'm taking on Deneen later, but um, that the administrative state can be, can take all the goods of the three classes and just elevate it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the same way, like we only view the king as being like a guy who takes over the administrative state and rules it purely by himself, right. you know? Uh, and what uh, Matthew Scarence is arguing is that <clears throat> precisely because paganism ends up having one of the classes take more power than the other, that they start to arrogate all of that to themselves and become either the god emperor or kind of super corrupt oligarchy or a kind of mass democracy Um and so it's precisely Christianity that can that can um, take away all the excesses of the classes and, mm-hmm. and make them work together well. Yeah. And make the possibility for monarchy come back to it. Yeah, he says um, <clears throat> somewhere near the end of his the end of his essay, um, he describes the the difference between um, the royal power and the sort of Christian order of things, um, which he does see as a fulfillment of a certain striving within paganism. Um, he sees the difference as a real distribution of power where mm-hmm. um, because there is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God as part of the social order, the um, various divisions of power have to be power ruling under God and never power ruling as God. Um, and that seems about right. But he also points out that where this gets changed is when um, that distribution turns to administration. So if distribution is like the giving of real authority to other people beyond the king, beyond the sovereign, um, 
administration is the idea that other people are basically the way that the will of the sovereign, the will of the sort of one central power, whatever that be, becomes um, injected into society. Mm -hmm. And so instead of people with their own authority, you have people who are basically employees of a, of a sovereign regime. Yeah. Um, and this he locates as the, the way that Christendom corrupts the way mm-hmm. that it becomes. Um, and it's the else. loss of agency on the half, uh, the bureaucrat as well. He's just like, whatever my, you know, whatever the policy is, <laughs> yeah, which is obviously what we, uh, what we experience, he says, the failures of the administrative state are manifold and they are ubiquitous in modern life. Who among us has not felt the cold, crude, and omnipresent hand of the administrative state in all the major decisions of life? The state invades not only the personal lives of its subjects, but the lives of communities, as when in France, under the guise of rationalization, it abolished the provinces that had been formed by historical use and natural geography in favor of a blatantly artificial grid of departments. Um, in Italy, under the fascist reg- regime, all emigration from the country was forbidden in an effort to expand the state economy. Instead, this resulted in the complete and devastating implosion of Italy's economy. Not content with dictating the lives of persons and countries, the administrative state even attempts to shape nature itself in its own image. In the 17th century, for instance, the Prussian state sought the rational organization of forests to plot them into separate ranks, to divide elm from oak for the purpose purposes of increased production efficiency and tax revenue. The illusion of order gradually gave way over the generations to the chaos of Waldstraben, forest death, as the delicate balance of natural ecology revenged itself on the state that had so brutally cast it aside. And he gives a a few other examples. Um, But the basic point is that this thing that we call the state um, is often characterized as just another word for governance. And so when people critique the state, as he does too, one of the ways of of getting rid of that critique is just imagining that they're they're critiquing government government as such that they're critiquing rule that they're critiquing lordship that they're critiquing any kind of order to society and so they're really just anarchists or something like that. What Scarence points out is that the the Christian um, political orders is characterized by a certain humility um, at every level of authority and. It's this humility that the state oversteps um, mm. and, and sort of draws, draws the sort of idea that order actually proceeds from the state and isn't something that the state, um, the government, serves or maintains. Yes. And that fundamental shift is, you know, it's easy to do. I think everyone can become, become tyrannical in their own lives in that way to see instead of to see ourselves instead of as stewards of the lives that are given to us of the peace that's present to us we can see ourselves as the source of it um, but as those examples point out the attempt to provide order from above to act sort of godly in that way usually ends up destroying the peace that it would would produce mm-hmm. um, and so I think that it's it's very important to realize because there's sometimes you know Catholics especially but just people in general will say things, about the state that I guess can be kind of um, sound offensive if if you have this idea that this state is somehow an, a natural institution of governance. So I think of the the time that J.R. Tolkien said that um, if any, what did he say? Anyone who uses the word state 
should be given an opportunity to repent, and if they don't, they will be executed immediately. He was describing his his sort of political <laughs> his political <laughs> philosophy. Uh, and then I was thinking also of um, oh, of Nietzsche in "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," which I'm not, you know, I'm not saying everything he says is right, but it is certainly indicative of um, the non natural character of this thing we call state. Mm-hmm. That even a guy like Nietzsche is looking at it and is just repulsed. So I was going to read something. Uh, the new idol. The right? new idol from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He's uh, speaking in the um, in the language of the state. So this is something the state, which he calls the monster, says. Because he begins this whole thing where he says, State? What is that? Well then, lend me your ears now, for I shall... Say my words about the death of peoples. State is the name of the coldest of all cold monsters. It even lies coldly, and this lie crawls out of its mouth. I, the state, am the people. Okay, so that's the state. He's, mm-hmm. the, he's the cold monster. Who claims to be the people. Yeah. On earth there is nothing greater than I, than I. The ordaining finger of God am I. Thus roars the monster. And not only the long-eared and the short-sighted sink to their knees... Oh, even to you, you great souls, it whispers its dark lies. Unfortunately, it detects the rich hearts who gladly squander themselves. Yes, it also detects you, you vanquishers of the old god. You grew weary in battle, battle, and now your weariness still serves the new idol. It wants to gather heroes and honorable men around itself, this new idol. Gladly, it suns itself in the sunshine of your good consciences, the cold monster. It wants to give you everything, if you worship it, the new idol. Thus, it buys the shining of your virtue and the look in your proud eyes. Yeah. So good. So, <laughs> just to say that, um, you know. It takes all the energy of politics and puts it into this just, like, mechanism of, of bureaucracy and violence. Yeah. And you can't, like Nietzsche's pointing out, it doesn't actually... You can't do what you want with the state. Like, even if you had the state, if you had all the state yeah. powers, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do the things because it only has a kind of negative function. It just, yeah, um, it takes all the power of uh, for Nietzsche, all the power of the people who want to move beyond good and evil <clears throat> and become, you know, Ubermensch for him, and it moves them into just a a state bureaucracy and then all of a sudden they're just lame yeah yeah (laughs) um like i'm writing now on nietzsche and i think people people miss so much that uh nietzsche's not a nihilist he's not a he's not even what you would really call a moral relativist he has a vision and he has a goal and his version of politics is not just pure statehood um it really is for the coming back of men of virtue and philosophy and art and the higher men and these type of things. But I, I think that just demonstrates it there that um, the kind of like secular acceptance of Nietzsche on the left and the right oftentimes will make him either as a kind of genealogist of the state in which he's trying to show that it's just power games and then you use it to, you know, overthrow state power or on the right, it's like, well, this is what strength is, and we need a strong state. But as you pointed out here, like, he's not a statist. No, <laughs> but anyways. So Scarence, um just did a wonderful job, a wonderful history here. Um, and he also has some 
great insight into the corruption and fall, and also it made the Austro-Hungarian Empire unique. Um, And he, in this essay, takes to task the idea that it was sort of an inventor of of bureaucracy uh, as a form and says that it was not. It was actually um, a continuance of the medieval idea of the civil servant um, that, yes, over time up to about World War I did corrupt into um, a bureaucracy, and that was precisely its downfall. Um, So, yeah, read it, check it out. You'll like it. And then we've got James Wood, who's given us um, the good news on Delubach, which I'm very grateful for him because, you know, not being a particularly intelligent theologian, I sometimes say things that to me come more through just my immediate engagement with scriptures or just vibes. <laughs> and then someone says, yeah, Delubach said that. And, and then I go to Delubach and indeed he did. And so there is a, there's a, it's <laughs> great that there's, yeah, the it's Delubach great that there's someone doing the work. Um, and this essay is really just laying out the Lubach's historically embedded argument with integralism and his um, attempt to kind of carve out an answer to the question of the, uh, church and state um, and to uh, locate that the Lubach's thought in the context of um, the controversies concerning Action Francaise. Which um, we could say a lot about, I think, what most offended to Lubach, what, what comes clear in this essay, is this idea that, that Catholics had in France um, that they could basically partner up with atheistic political movements that appeared very powerful um, at the time. And the defense being something to the effect of uh, that this is actually the real structure of reality, that there is a difference between like theological facts and political facts, that there is a um, realm of pure nature in which pragmatic considerations um, are sufficient. It's a very old, at this point, kind of, it seems silly. I think it seems silly, this idea that there's like a, there's like a, well, Christianity involves this sphere, but then there's this natural sphere that Christianity doesn't really involve. Um, mm-hmm. And so we can support a kind of atheistic, power-hungry regime here because it's going to fight for us as a church, as this other thing. Um, and Dulebach says this is a constant temptation for the church to say, oh, I'm losing power, I'm losing, a th- I'm losing influence, and so I'm going to ride on the coattails of some political regime um mm. and gain it that way de lubach you know and you know dostoevsky says the same thing in, in grand inquisitor but de lubach thinks this lowers not just the church but the state mm. um because it basically by separating the state out and saying like well it's just about this this is this just this is just the pragmatic business it um, gets rid of anything sacred about its role, about the temporal power. Oh, right. Um, it so, just becomes an accessory to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's very... I mean, a lot of people think that because they've accepted secularization that that there's nothing sacred about government. Um, and so then the church is is this sort of spiritual entity that stands over and against something that is 
that is temporal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's just like nothing about the incarnation that should lead us to think that the temporal itself is not also part of the, I mean, like what Andrew Jones calls the business of the peace and the faith that, that these are ultimately about one thing, one pursuit of heavenly, of heavenly perfection. Um, and so that there's no real like complete parsing them off from each other, even totally. as de Lubac wants to say they are in fact different. And at some point mm-hmm. James Wood uses the analogy of man and woman where, and I thought that was very helpful to think of spiritual and temporal, not, as man and the woman, because obviously when you do that, you're immediately going to decide which one is which. Uh, and Mm -hmm. depending on your view, it's going to become sexist inevitably. (laughs) Um, but to say, here's another thing where there's, there's two things that are, are different. Um, and both, but both about the same business. They're, 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 they're one thing and they're two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a great mystery. And it's um, and it's great to see in Dulubach as a kind of guiding guiding light. But also I think, you know, Dulubach was pretty constrained, it seems, in reading this essay by his time. We all are. So he really felt like he had to defend the church, seems to me, as like, don't worry, the church isn't going to do any fascist stuff. <laughs> which yeah. granted during de Lubac's time was a concern. And yeah, so right. you end up with his politics sort of being like, I, I promise this is all just going to be uh, the influence of, of conscience. That's the only way the church is involved in things, which is, you know, you look at the middle ages, it's like, well, unless you have a really broad view of conscience, that doesn't quite seem to follow mm-hmm. with the way the church, at least historically has, has um, governed people and, you know, um, and so it doesn't quite solve our problems. Uh, I don't think anything about this essay should make us think like in Lubach, we have our we answer. We figured it all out. Yeah, no, that's it, how to be church. He's just that's saying how it's to be not, state. <laughs> it's not counterpolis, and it's not integralism. Yeah, which he takes as kind of being the two that that Potter Waldstein in the the diarchy, Gelasian diarchy. Um, it basically says either you're going to have this kind of counterpolis where you're like a hover hover and you're like a peace lover and the stuff and you know there's no violence therefore there's no so you you keep state and church separate or you're a, a real integralist and you mesh them yeah and um de lubach saying uh, well through this article he's showing that de lubach is not he's not an augustinian radical that Waldstein wants to put him into being. Yeah, it's 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 much more. Uh, it's different than that. It's more serious. <laughs> yeah. So, well, read them as always. The uh, the work is in the writing. So yep. don't let us don't Get let us magazine. tell it to you. Yeah, please please subscribe to the magazine. I should also mention your overture was phenomenal for this. Uh, we, uh, we didn't we, we didn't give touch away onto it, but we don't give away the overture. All right, the overture <laughs> is is worth the. I think it's worth the whole thing, and then you get a lot of extra good stuff. So, um, oh yeah, we're doing some technology, some technology stuff. Uh, which uh, that's some, a good some children are for, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a good point to make a few announcements. So buy the magazine, and what you'll get is some decent thoughts on um, the development of technology, 
the way that technology has usurped our understanding of history, the way that technology is a fate for us, and some stuff about child labor. And <laughs> the reason I think you should read it is because we're having a conference on technology. This is, hopefully you've already heard, but if not, we'll say it again, May, last week into May, whatever that is. 23rd to 25th. That's right. We're going to be having... 2024. Just a really exciting conference. I, I, I'm i more excited about this than I have been of any others. It's not just because we've got Matthew Crawford speaking, right? It's also because we've got D.C. Schindler speaking. Uh, and it's also because we are are getting to debate such questions as should we use prayer apps? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great time. Yeah. So if you haven't yet, what's it? Newpolity.com slash events. Events. Okay. Yep. You can find it there. All right. So come on over. We've got a lot of room this time. We're doing it in a, in a new location if you've been, been here before, which should give us some more room. And the other essay I wrote in this was a review of Matthew Crawford's Why We Drive. This is the nicest I'll ever be about cars, I think. <laughs> um, but I think those two taken together are a good sense of what we want to talk about at the conference because in Why We Drive, Crawford's whole point is that when you take people out of the equation, when you make, when you start to serve technology instead of technology serving you, when you have a um, when when fear of death leads you to trust in mechanisms, inevitably you degrade yourself as a person because you are no longer developing the virtues by which you live from within. You start to live being protected from without. And for Matthew, this is like the definition of modern driving, where you're in a giant car that's ostensibly safe for you and is utilizing multiple computer systems whether it's automatic lane correction, whether it's beeping at you when your seatbelt's not on, whether mm-hmm. it's um, cruise control, all the way up to the sort of dream of the automated car. Uh, all of this eradicates the necessity for, for virtue and communion within the culture of driving. And the ultimate conclusion is, is very simple, which is that really we only get um, better and better automated cars insofar as people get worse and worse. Like you don't get to have one and the other. There's still just one goal or you're driving to a place. Yeah. So if you're not doing it and the computer's doing it, you're probably worse at driving. Totally. <laughs> so, you know. so I had a good, I had good fun reviewing his book um, and it's in there. We also have reviews of um, a book defending the novel as a form, which is great. That's Joshua Hren. Read that. It's marvelous. I don't know anyone besides Joshua Hren who can include as many quotes in one essay. And awesome quotes. They're always just like the best, most memorable quotes. Um, that man is an encyclopedia. It's incredible. Thanks. Read that. And then you were in here, Alex. We can't hey. forget. You did a review of Mr. Patrick Deneen's Dr. Patrick Deneen's uh, regime change toward a post-liberal future. Mm-hmm. And I think you were very kind to it. Um, Deneen basically sets up a political vision in, about our country in which you can understand what's going on if you understand that there's a fundamental divide between the elite and the people. 
So this is sort of like post facto populism. He's, you know, this has been happening for a while, obviously, the populist thing, and he's giving it a sort of uh, a description that's more intellectual, more rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a lot of really insightful things to say. I thought the most insightful thing that I got from the book and then again from your review was the function of the university system as a sort of badge producing um, or elite producing institution. Yeah. And it, and, you know, Deneen often says, you know, elite universities, like it plays both the function of if you don't have the bachelor degree, you basically can't get this class of jobs. So there's that discrimination. But then there's also the you know, it, you have to be an elite university to make the connections to get into the elite right. things. And he, you know, one section that was really good on this kind of meritocracy, and he quotes this book by uh, Sandel, I think is his name, The Tyranny of Merit. And uh, I went and read that book. It's very interesting. But um, it's the, the problem of meritocracy. Um it, it leads to a, what he'll call a cycle of self-congratulation then. Mm-hmm. Oh, we made it to Harvard. Therefore, we must be smarter because we did the test scores. Therefore, we must be better. Mm-hmm. And this leads to what, you know, and he uses Charles Murray as well, leads to this uh, more isolation of the classes. That it's not just because I ended up getting luckier and was, you know, better at a test than this other guy. It's really because I'm better. And I live in a better neighborhood and I'm like a better person yeah. than, you know, the MAGA guy out in Ohio or something, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, Murray has this idea of the super zips, which is the zip codes that have like, you know, millions and millions of dollars within the, within their group to be in it, who are mostly Harvard, Yale, or, you know, Princeton grads, mm-hmm. you know, outside DC and such. So Deneen is picking up on that. Well, and also picking up on the way that once you have, um, an elite manufacturing plant, then you have the ability to simply signify um, an allegiance to the, to what's being taught in the university without being particularly intelligent. So it's, it's (laughs) like, it's like, and and this is part of the argument that I think is right about um, basically amoral um, language that like, okay. Woke stuff. Sorry. Mm. I want to find a better way to talk about it, but uh, which is that, you know, it is a product of, of university education. It's obviously a from above sort of situation, What it allows is for people to use that language, um, which they associate and only really receive thoroughly as a product of the elite university. Then the use of that language and that way of thinking becomes itself evidence of having gone to the university which becomes a sort of circular loop of it. It's right because it came from the university and the university teaches it because it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it really does is it signifies class difference. So the ability to manipulate that, manipulate that language comes at the price of a degree. And the manip- ability to manipulate it really well comes from the cost of uh, a very elite uh, degree, a degree from elite elite university. And so you have... Um, and none of this requires uh, intelligence, right? Like it, it doesn't, I read a lot of papers, unfortunately, um, from kind of queer theory side of the world. And one of the things that they do is they pretend to think where they take some 
issue or some text. Maybe it's the Bible. Maybe it's just something happening out there on YouTube. And what they do is they like run it through their filter of analysis, which just means translating it into the language they've received at the university without yeah. actually doing anything very different. So it's like, I'm going to read this, the book of Judith from a queer perspective. Mm-hmm. And then the thing they produce is this very like moralistic preachy thing, which is really just a translation into an elite language of what is in fact common language oh right yeah yeah and then this signifies intelligence without being intelligence because mm-hmm. there's nothing smart about that <laughs> i mean eventually you can get yeah. a computer to do it but you're just making judith butler or not judith but judith the book of judith oh, i know i get that confused too yeah she, she cut off the head of holofernes uh <laughs> so yeah and okay the uh I, there's a lot i learned from it um uh, Deneen's book, but I think it's kind of the deficiency of class analysis in a Machiavellian mode um, that you can only really say our elite are good slash bad and we need a different elite. Like it, it it's, it's almost as if you, you can't really like demonstrate it. You just have to kind of say it a bunch of times. You'd be like, oh, well, the people, what they really want is common good conservatism, which is what Deneen sets up. And they want, uh, you know, a, the people desire an elite that acts for their good. It's like, but that's self-evident. If you're a people, you want an elite that acts for your good. Um, Sustained systematic change is necessary instead of merely opposing the current elite. And that's what Trump was not able to do. So Deneen thinks that common good conservatism can kind of come about. But the means by which you do that is what he calls Machiavellian means, which is strong-armed populism or muscular populism Mm -hmm. right and it's but he's like kind of ambiguous it's like oh well if we pressure them with you know uh like being angry protests you know bad votes i don't you know what exactly is this muscular populism it's not violence in the streets for Deneen. he's very clear about that yeah and that kind of ambiguity kind of leaves you like a little what is this what are you even trying to do with Machiavellian means? At least that's where I got to. Yeah, because I can I can perceive of killing all the elite as being effective. But if we're going to convince all the elite to act in a certain way, then then you have to ask, what is it that motivates them? And what Deneen says is that they're motivated by self-interest. They're a self-interested class interested only in perpetuating their own power. Mm-hmm. But then the suggestion is that we need to speak into that. So we need to become efficacious according to to that elite structure. Namely, we need to make it clear that it's in their self-interest to be conservative. And and this to me is a complex way of admitting defeat, of saying, like, well, <laughs> yeah. there's there's no there's no Christian form to politics that's possible. All we can do is have an elite that and this is where it gets weird because like by virtue of being elite are the self-interested class um, and then threaten them to enact conservative policy, conservative family policy. He gives a lot of different policy recommendations um, through our sort of Machiavellian means, which aren't violent. They're just basically challenge. Um, they are threatening them with vote and money. I mean, that's all that mm-hmm. it, can, it can be when you, take violence off the table um now i say it's defeatist because it's basically saying that what 
what we're not going to get is um, a elite who are actually serving the common good. So that that's what was really interesting about the book is at the end of the day, he kind of alludes every now and then to a, a process by which at some point genuinely yeah. um, good aristocrats will sort of emerge from right. this populist process who will have the common good in mind. But the way that we're supposed to get it is by just having self-interested um uh, elites who do not have the common good in mind pretend that they do when the common Fake good people <laughs> like threaten them. Yeah, and that that doesn't seem right. And the other thing that I thought your view pointed out very right is that that cor- correctly pointed out <laughs> was the idea that the people are the good guys. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be a the people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and B, I want to be the good guy. So there's something ideologically very motivating about this this mm-hmm. thesis. It's like he just comes out swinging and is like, "Look, if you're reading this book, granted the people aren't reading this book, it's it's elites. But if you're reading this book, you know you're a good guy and you're ruled by bad guys. And then you're just you're in an action movie. It's like Marvel, uh, you know, movie number thirty two, and you're you're on the good the good team. Um, but it's been my observation, and maybe this is checked out for, for you, that priest and people go together, and that if we have a progressive and wicked elite who want to, who, who worship the idea of a technologically produced future apart from tradition and apart from custom, and they want to constantly be shaking things up, and ruining um, peaceful, conservative communities. The only way that they have efficacy within a society is if that exists as a desire in the people. It's not, we're not like these sealed off units where you can have an elite guy who exists in contradistinction to the people of whom he is an elite. Mm -hmm. The very definition of an elite is that he provides for society at some level what they want. Yes. And maybe I'm just being cynical because, you know, God's own Ohio just voted yes on issue one and have gone leftwards of Washington in terms of abortion. Um, But what seems obvious to me is that there is a progressive populist thing that's been happening and will continue to happen just as there's been a concern. Like like the people are actually as divided. Mm -hmm. And... And if you've met them, they're sinful and very given to loving money more than God. Have you ever met them? Because that's what I've found. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. when you have that, you've got a, um, a reason that you have the elite that you do. That, mm. that makes sense. But what he wants to posit is that we've had and had apparently for 100 years or so a... Um, elite that is the elite of a people and yet not of the people. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think uh, the populism thing's a bit a bit weird to me because there's been a, I think there's been a move. You know, a friend once described the state to me as a game of whack-a-mole, but the state holds an enormous sledgehammer. Mm. It takes them a really long time to hit you with the sledgehammer, and. In the same way, if you want a regime change, like I think these thinkers on more of the right have kind of given up on 
the populist side of things and more towards we're just going to speak to the DC elites. We're going to yeah. speak to the elites that we can to start to solidify some type of right wing power that can, you know, take over a few bureaucracies here and there and like kind of run Washington as new elites. And they're not woke. They understand their enemies, this type of thing. And I'm thinking of like Moldbug and uh, Moldbug Yarvin and some of these other guys on the right. Their their whole focus is populism sucks. Democracy is terrible. We just need to go talk to the current elites, get them to reform their power and use it to what we want. And so Deneen kind of is trying to do both. He's trying to do like the people are good and conservative and we're going to just use that power. And also we need the elites to convert. Yeah. Because he has this whole thing of like, um, this will require a number of class traders on behalf of the lead, the elite. Hmm. So he kind of wants to take like a kind of conservative MAGA populism, yeah. unite it with a kind of Yarvin monarchist elite new class thing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm, I'm at least this is how I categorize it in my mind. And it just doesn't, at least for me, it didn't, it didn't congeal. <laughs> like it didn't come into like a single plan. Yeah, it was like okay, the people aren't as conservative as, as you pr- are assuming they are. The uh, elites are a lot stronger than can just have a muscular populism overthrow their whole thing. Yeah. Uh, why would the elites decide to become this version of elite? Is it in their? Is it really in their self-interest to, to act on behalf of the people? Can they just make an appearance of it? So while I learned a lot from it, I think there's, there's a lot of deficiencies and it's kind of like main thrust. Well, and I think the... the- the unfortunate part is that it just seems to be describing what we already have, which you bring up in the review, um, where it's described as like, okay, here's a sort of roadmap for the post-liberal future. Like, we're going to do this and get from point A to point B. But when you really get to the depth of the description, it's like, we are going to have protests and we're going to vote in such a way that an elite people who don't care about us and only care about money are going to nevertheless enact conservative policy. And it's like, that is what is happening. Yeah. That's what we have. The only difference is that sometimes because, I mean, I think he's right to a certain extent that there isn't, he's right about the elite, not as the elite, but as our elite, the elite of this culture, this liberal culture. He's right that governance is done for self-interest. 100%, yeah. Uh, with rare exceptions, and when people are those exceptions, they fight hard battles. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's right in a certain ex- to a certain extent, but what he's wrong about is the idea that um, this isn't just something that is as doable on the left as it is on the right, and in fact is often done on the left, as, as we've yep. seen many, many times. And part of the concern, I think, that many people have is that when you argue that we should increase the scope of elite power for the sake of conservative ends without arguing for a concrete way in which the elite become um, Christian and devoted to the common good. Then you expand the scope of state power without assuring us that it's always wielded in the same direction. So for instance, (laughs) conservatives will do this and I, and I get it. And obviously I want, I want my family to have as much money as possible, et cetera. But they'll describe this sort of increase in state power where uh, it's all going to be for good ends, but the state is going to is going to develop new bureaucracies for the sake of serving families and increasing population. It's like pronatalist and it's going to be um, pro-church and, and we're going to we're going to expand, but for conservative ends. Mm-hmm. 
which is great if we are at the same time arguing that the elite who are expanding the scope of their power and doing all the things they are doing are in fact becoming good at the same time. But the whole premise of Deneen's argument is that they're self-interested and we can't really change that. And so we need to have a populist uh, just threat against the elite. We need to just speak their language of, of self-interest and violence in order to get them to do what they want. Well, then, then we're just kicking the can down the road, or at least we're <laughs> just waiting for the point at which our conservative protest becomes less efficacious than the liberal protest, which is also directed at their self-interest. But now you have a state that has expanded itself for the sake of conservative ends being taken over by uh, or being shifted in its own Mm self-interest to um, destructive destructive ends. Only now it's got more of a scope for it. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's like, I mean, this is, this always comes up with pronatalist stuff where it's like the, the kind of management of populations through abortion and contraception didn't begin with abortion and contraception. It began with pronatalist intentions. I mean, if you look at the like mercantilist period, like the interest in population obviously came up the moment that states looked at themselves as having a GDP, as having a workforce, as having a, um, as their power being synonymous with the amount of productivity and money that they could have. Uh, so then obviously reproduction of a workforce becomes an issue to them. Now that's pronatalist. They want lots of workers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then that creates problems, but that same sort of power structure that could, um, that could encourage and promote lots of workers can just as easily be turned if it's not, if it's not devoted to a good beyond itself can just as easily be turned to killing babies, which it in fact is, yeah. <laughs> which just goes back to the point, which is like, I think this is already happening. Yes. I don't think this is normative. I think this is descriptive. I don't think this is what we ought to do. I think this is what's being done. And we're just hoping that, you know, we'll have a couple more tide shifts in the conservative direction. I honestly don't think I'd be as mad, like upset with the book if it wasn't called regime change. Like, sure. I think if you were talking about how regimes kind of work around here. Yeah. How regimes are working, <laughs> you know, um, but to call it regime change, to have this really strong language that we're going to do all these things. I think it, um, I don't know. It's just the insights that I find in the book, which are really good insights get overshadowed by like the introduction. When you're reading the introduction, like, okay, he's, he really thinks he can do regime change here. And then you get into the main chapters. You're like, this is awesome. This is really cool. He's describing this really well. And then it's like Machiavellian means and stuff just like the, a lot of the reviewers like just mercilessly attacked it for that. But I think there's a lot, I think it's worth a read. Yeah. I think it definitely is. Although I don't think his prescription is going to work. So, but you know, who among us has the right prescription? No idea. Can't, can't blame a guy for that. (laughs) Who's the real doctor. So we have another magazine and we're very grateful for your, uh, your time as you let us, as you let us review it. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that there might be people who listen to these reviews and think, well, now I don't have to get the magazine because I listened to the review. Absolutely not. You must get the magazine. You must subscribe. Without it, we fall apart. And furthermore, um, we can only really do a very partial and limited justice to what's in here. Uh, What I really like about this magazine, actually, is that the writing itself is really good. I mean, there's some really beautiful prose here. Mm -hmm. And so I would hope that for the sake of beauty, you would subscribe. And it looks good. 
well, we try. You know, <laughs> we try. All right, everyone. Guys, just falling off. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but great. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for another podcast. We will see you next time.